Before industrialization and the convenience of grocery stores, you had to understand the natural world and its rhythms. You had to understand weather patterns, know when and how to plant, how to nurture the plants, where the animals were located and how to hunt them. So in regards to native peoples, that is what is known as traditional indigenous knowledge. And we need to make sure our resources are available and sustainable. And in order to do that, we, we have to be activists. I'm Tanya Kersen, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. Centuries of colonization have disrupted indigenous communities' ability to control their own food systems. But throughout the Americas, projects are underway to reclaim and protect the land, water, plants, animals, and food and farming practices that underpin indigenous self-determination and well-being. This month's book features dozens of Native scholars, farmers, seed keepers, chefs, and activists in the United States who are part of the movement for indigenous food sovereignty. My guest today is historian and gardener Devin Mahisua, co-editor with Elizabeth Hoover of Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States, Restoring Cultural Knowledge, Protecting Environments, and Regaining Health, which recently won the Daniel F. Austin Award presented by the Society for Economic Botany and Gourmand International's Best in the World University Press book. A citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, she's the Cora Lee Beers Price Professor in the Humanities Program at the University of Kansas and author of numerous award-winning books, including Recovering Our Ancestors' Gardens, Indigenous Recipes, and Guide to Diet and Fitness, which is being re-released this month with new chapters, recipes, and a curriculum guide for educators and activists. Hi, Devin. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. I really love the chapter in the book called Voices from the Indigenous Food Movement, which is a collection of short personal stories, including your own, really setting the tone that we're not just talking about abstract food systems here, but something that's deeply personal. Can you start by sharing a little bit about your own food story and the personal connection that you have to this work? Sure. I was one of those kids whose parents had to go find them to tell them dinner was ready. <laughs> you know, I had access to creeks and fields and the woods growing up, and every family member we visited had places to explore, so I've always been aware of the natural world and animals, how things grow, and how quickly it can be ruined. <sighs> I always brought animals home, had pets, watched family members garden, and I've written about this many times, but the gardens I have now are patterned after my family's gardens. Mm. And a central theme of my first novel, Roads of My Relations, is the family garden that holds together generations of traumatized Choctaws through removal and its aftermath. You write what you know. So flashing forward a bit, I wrote an article in 2003 about changing our diets by focusing on pre-contact foods. And a friend read it, took the message to heart, and he lost 125 pounds. Wow. Yeah, I thought, well, maybe I should expand that into a book. Um, and I did in 2005, and that was Recovering Our Ancestors' Gardens. I coined the phrase, decolonize your diet. 
and wrote about the dangers of fry bread. Mm. I started the American Indian Health and Diet Project at KU, and I managed the Facebook page, Indigenous Eating, that has now, I think, around 8,000 followers. So we had Dina Jillio Whitaker on the podcast last year, and she talked about the history of environmental justice primarily and what it means to indigenize environmental justice. So in a, in a similar vein, I was hoping you could give us a recap of the history of food sovereignty and also what it means to think specifically about indigenous food sovereignty. I think the idea of food sovereignty has been around for a very long time, but the term food sovereignty was really started to be used in 1996. And the accepted definition that everybody uses is, quote, food sovereignty is the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agriculture systems, unquote. And indigenous food sovereignty, that phrase began around that time. And as you may have read in Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States and Recovering Our Ancestors' Gardens, the term sovereignty is a problematic term because a sovereign nation has complete control over every aspect of its politics, economics, its land base. But United States tribes are domestic dependent nations, which means they are answerable to the U.S. government. We are not sovereign nations. But this phrase is recognizable and accepted, so we all use it. The important point is that we continue to strive to achieve indigenous food sovereignty. And in doing that, we can accomplish a lot, even if we don't actually get control of everything that we want. And this idea of indigenous food sovereignty has been around as long as tribes have existed. Everyone has always wanted and needed to control their resources, their food production, their distribution. And if you look to the organization of tribes historically and how they managed their plants and animals and how they traded and protected their resources, you can see that this idea has always been here. For tribes with a long tradition of farming, there have been a lot of really interesting efforts in the last few decades to revitalize native farming practices as part of food sovereignty initiatives, including, you know, indigenous soil and water conservation techniques, the recovery of heirloom crops, seed keeping networks. Can you talk about this trend a little bit and maybe give us a particularly successful example of this kind of work? Yes. As more people start to become interested in their food ways. They want to grow and raise some of it. And it's easy to get seeds at the local Dollar General, but the movement is to plant those seeds that not only have cultural meaning, but they need to be non-GMO and are hopefully descended from those plants that tribes actually grew, not from the hardware store. And that's what's empowering. The People's Farm on the White Mountain Apache Reservation is a community effort. Tyrone Thompson manages the North Loop family farms. Devin Pena, he is founder of the Asakia Institute. Rowan White writes extensively about the importance of seed saving. And the number of community and backyard gardens has just exploded. 
um, you can get online and their websites, uh, their new pages on Facebook, everybody is very interested. But farming and gardening can be very hard work. And the bigger the enterprise, the more organization and help is needed. So organizations such as the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, uh, Native American Agriculture Fund provide grant support and information. Great. Yeah, those are a lot of really great examples. You know, I think talking about, uh, you know, native food crops and seeds, it's difficult not to think about GMOs and the threat that genetically modified crops and also uh, animals. We have GMO salmon now, um, GMO corn, how are native people and you know indigenous people who are involved in in food sovereignty efforts um, talking about GMOs and resisting in practical and political ways the expansion of these crops? You know this is why people are trading seeds and these seed organizations are growing and we're seeing more writing about seeds so we don't have to use the GMO seeds, but. A lot of times, you know, you plant your crops and you're right next door to, you know, Farmer Joe and he's got the GMO plants. And so there is a concern in a lot of places about cross-pollination. And also, you know, how are the GMO plants maybe killing the pollinators? Because that's going to impact, you know, what it is that you are growing. So you can only do really the best that you can and try to make sure that the seeds that you are using are heirloom seeds. You know, you get them from a reputable place. And a lot of these indigenous seed organizations are willing to give Native people seeds. That's what we need a little bit more of. And I would also say that along those lines, we need the tribes to get in on this. We need tribal councils to kick in money to show support because many of these organizations are grassroots organizations. They're individuals, small groups of people who decided to do something without help from their tribe. And this is why we need to start becoming even more politically active. And that's not the fun part to all of this. <laughs> uh, but that's the difficult part. Right. That's the tough part is the is organizing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I just keep having flashes of like different parts of the book um, that resonated and that were just these aha moments for me. And one of those was I, as someone who's trained in critical political economy, tend to think of food sovereignty as largely about control like who controls resources, who controls seeds, and struggles around food sovereignty as struggles for control. And what really struck me in thinking about indigenous food sovereignty is that indigenous peoples don't really see seeds necessarily in terms of, well, we need to control this. It's more about relationships and that, in fact, no one should control seeds. Everything is connected, but if you don't respect the natural world, and if you don't understand how the natural world works, and if you try to control it, then we find ourselves in the situation we're in right now. Mm. Climate change, global warming, you know, this is affecting everyone. And, you know, the seeds, we need to take care of the seeds and respect the seeds, because if you don't do that, 
you're not going to be able to eat. You know, particularly, you know, after industrialization, all food is just, you know, commodities. We need to make money off of it and we need to sell it. And whenever you start thinking about resources um, in terms of what can I get for that, that's where you really get into trouble. So you mentioned climate change, and I really love the chapter by Kyle Powis White in the book also that um, is about climate change. He has this great phrase, um, the capacity for collective continuance, um, which just struck me as so powerful. Can you speak to some of the impacts of climate change on Native communities and how food sovereignty efforts are, are part of creating indigenous climate resiliency and that capacity for collective continuance? Yes. Well, as we've seen, fires in the West, the Southwest, flooding, rising coastal waters, there's soil damage. People are migrating and building to get out of harm's way, which of course displaces plants and animals even more. My son is in graduate school in Tucson, and it is so hot during the day that you can't do much of anything outside. Phoenix needs more water and continues to take from the Northland that has been in decades of drought. We lived in Flagstaff for 16 years, and we're always in fear of fire um, in the summer because we backed the forests. And the bark beetles took advantage of that and destroyed millions of acres of trees. We have friends at Hopi, you know, and Hopis, of course, have been farmers for millennia, but they stopped farming because it's too challenging. It's just too dry. So now they buy their corn. Animals are moving north. Our agricultural systems will suffer with this rising heat, rising humidity, lack of water. So you combine the climate change with pesticides, destruction of the natural world, and you have a depletion of animals, plants, insects, marine life water shortages. And in regards to Native people, we already have to hustle to find pre-contact foods. And many plants, and you know this if you're a forager, are on private land. They've been plowed over, uh, trees and plants removed to make way for housing, ranching, and massive agriculture. I mean, I go out every day on foot for seven to 10 miles, and the vast fields of corn and soy that I go past is for cattle or it's going to be made into ethanol, right? I looked for pawpaws yesterday for two hours, and I didn't find any in the usual spots. And it's probably because of the unusually cold spring that we had. And what are pawpaws, just for our listeners who may not know? They're a wonderful fruit, about the size of a baked potato, and they have a very custardy kind of texture with huge seeds. And they have a taste kind of like banana, mango mixed together. And pawpaws grow in the eastern part of the United States. And if you're looking at north-south, their range really hits around Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> I live in Baldwin City, which is south of that. So climate change has affected the distribution of certain fruits and certain you know, foods that have been traditionally foraged. And in addition to that, just the expansion of, you know, industrial agriculture, as well as the closing off of private property, all of those things uh, makes it increasingly challenging to practice these forms of food harvesting in traditional food ways. Exactly. And there's also competition for some of the foods that are out there. 
And I really like Gerald Clark's piece in Indigenous Food Sovereignty that discusses California. He tells us how Native Californians were adept at planting, foraging, and raising animals, and they are in the process of revitalizing those practices on tribal lands so they won't have disagreements with private landowners and Forest Service about resources. They have their own. But, you know, as we were talking about climate change and these fires, you would probably have to go tribe by tribe out there to see how they've been affected by the fires. But it could be potentially disastrous. You know, it wipes out, you know, your resource base. This is why it's important that we really network. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind around the fires is there's been a lot of discussion around traditional indigenous methods of fire and forest management that have been essentially (laughs) ignored and how that has made the situation much, much worse. Exactly. You know, the idea now is put that fire out immediately. And, you know, historically, you let the fire burn to get rid of the underbrush, which you have in some of these forests, like the ponderosa pines, for example, these big, healthy ponderosas can withstand fires. But if they are just surrounded by piles and piles of needles and underbrush, they become very vulnerable with these super hot fires. I mean, I have heard and seen trees explode in Flagstaff. Um, We had a terrible fire down the road from us one year, and it just, it made the soil sterile. It was that bad of a fire, and it took, you know, a decade to start recovering from that. You know, as you write about in the book, not all tribes were agricultural tribes. The Comanches, who were forcibly relocated to Oklahoma, some of whom adopted farming and gardening, but their foodways had historically focused on hunting and gathering. Can you talk about this forced shift from a hunting and gathering lifestyle to a sedentary life and how this impacted people's health, and also what some of the challenges are for food sovereignty initiatives in places where tribes don't really have an agricultural tradition to revitalize? Well, the Comanches were hunters and raiders, and their foods primarily consisted of bison, antelope, deer, turkeys, and they did gather seasonal plant foods because they they were nomadic and they had a lot of area to roam, but they were not farmers. But if they came across a tribe with corn, melons, beans, well, they just took them right? Because they were and still are known as lords of the plains. They dominated the Southwest. They don't have heirloom seeds that have been passed down through the generations. So that makes the foodways revitalization very difficult. And maybe as you saw in that chapter, there are statements from Comanches who, you know, they rationalized that because they were traditionally meat eaters, then they should be able to eat the fattiest parts of the beef. But the problem there is, of course, wild bison and ranched raised beef injected with hormones are not the same things. Right. Meat is not meat is not meat, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they're not active either. The Comanche Nation citizens have very serious health problems, and they do not have any food sovereignty initiatives. Mm. Um, You know, now there's other tribes that were primarily hunters, you know, Northern Plains. And um, it's my understanding they're doing a lot of ranching, 
But again, it's the same situation that unless you did some farming historically, which seeds are you going to adopt and start planting now? But I think that also brings up something that we can't get too caught up in being only traditionalists because we need to take the very best from what the invaders brought over here. If you find that Brussels sprouts and asparagus is what you really like and it's nutritious, then that's what you should grow, even if that's not something that you grew traditionally. It essentially comes down to, you know, not getting caught up in a fetish of authenticity or kind of a purity politics, right, around, well, we're only going to consume pre-contact foods or we weren't agricultural peoples, therefore we're not going to you know, farm or garden, um, and we're only going to use meat. So I, I think that's a really interesting and important point. I also think that it is important that you be able to distinguish between your pre-contact and post-contact foods so that you don't make the mistake of saying fry bread was traditional. <laughs> sure, sure. You need to be able to differentiate so that you can at least be culturally knowledgeable so that if you do want to teach about your food ways, that you don't make the mistake of saying, yes, we made chocolate cake. You know, my tribe, we have online recipes, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and they've got, you know, grape dumplings made with white flour and sugar and butter. And yes, we did make grape dumplings, but not out of those ingredients. <laughs> right. As you say in one of your chapters, indigenous peoples can eat non-indigenous foods and still be healthy. Obviously, this requires a kind of cultural literacy, right, about differentiating between pre-contact and post-contact foods and which are healthier foods and healthier recipes. But it's about more than, than diet, right? So the hope is that and I'm quoting from the book here, a return to traditional foodways will provide something more, empowering links to culture and history. So can you talk about this broader conception of quote-unquote good health and how this connection to history and culture through food contributes to well-being? Before industrialization and the convenience of grocery stores, you had to understand the natural world and its rhythms. You had to understand weather patterns, know when and how to plant, how to nurture the plants, where the animals were located and how to hunt them, when these plants were ready to harvest and what parts to eat and what not to eat. Because you can't just eat all of some plants, right? You could um, be poisoned. So in regards to native peoples, that is what is known as traditional indigenous knowledge. And one strategy to regain health is to get natives back outside, to learn their traditional food ways, to identify the edible plants, to start gardens and get dirty. And that also means foraging. And we need to make sure our resources are available and sustainable. And in order to do that, we have to become politically, economically, and environmentally informed. And because politics and economics run the show, we, we have to be activists. We have to become engaged. By becoming engaged with our histories, our communities, and with those who can educate us, we become culturally aware. And that is crucial for physical health, but also mental health. 
And I think getting back to your roots, getting back to your traditional foods, and it also means you understand where that came from. And you learn about the ceremony associated with that food and you appreciate it more. So everything is intertwined. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded also of this concept, of course, from indigenous worldviews and cultures in Latin America that has different names, but is often referred to as living well or in Spanish, um, buen vivir, um, which is this broad concept around eating good food and having an active life and having community support and just being happy also, right? And all of the things that feed into that, feeling culturally connected. Well, in growing food, preparing the food, eating it, saving your seeds, all of that is also uh, social activity. It's a community activity. You know, historically, tribes, you know, the people were out there growing things together. They had to in order to survive. And in Recovering Our Ancestors' Gardens, there's a recipe from Jolie Proudfit on how to create We Wish, which is their acorn dish. And that is multi-day task to prepare those acorns, you know, so that you can consume them. But it's also crucial for social cohesiveness. Everybody talks to each other and they tell stories and they learn. In your book, Recovering Our Ancestors' Gardens, you give such a rich history of indigenous foodways and physical activity in the Western Hemisphere and how those were disrupted by settler colonialism. And you also include dozens of recipes centering pre-contact foods. Is there one recipe in particular that you love that you could describe to us and share why it's meaningful for you? There, okay, there's two ways I would answer that because my favorite foods are just in their raw state. You know, I love summer so I can just go out and pick peppers and tomatoes. That's what I like. That's what I look forward to. But in regards to a dish that you actually prepare, the one that I have always had is sauteed squashes, peppers, onions, and tomatoes. And I use uh, grapeseed oil. Lots of black pepper, and my favorite spice, if you call it a spice, is tomato powder. Oh, wow. You know, you dry your tomato and then just grind it down because you've had onion powder and garlic powder. Well, this is tomato powder, and that's kind of my go-to. I put that on everything. But I make this several times a week, and it reminds me of the old house on Elmira and Muskogee, where I could look out the back door and see the big garden because my grandfather would just walk out there and get it all and bring it back in. The other reason this is important to me is because it represents what I try to put out there, something that's easy to make. It's not expensive. Anybody can make it and you can grow it all yourself. I love this. I'm also an avid gardener, and this is also the way that I like to cook. <laughs> it's just to go out and get whatever's <laughs> hanging off a plant and ready to eat and just eat it as close to its natural form as possible. Mm-hmm. You said you you know, you know, make this particular dish several times a week, but it, it also really sounds um, kind of fall-like dish. It sort of reminds me of Thanksgiving you know, you talk about this, you talk about Thanksgiving, and um, you encourage people to practice as an alternative to, you know, white settler colonial traditions of Thanksgiving, a week of indigenous eating. So can you describe 
your hopes around this practice and also if you have any special plans around celebrating this week of Indigenous eating this year. Yes, I I started that week of Indigenous eating about 10 years ago to honor Martin Reinhardt. He's an Anishinaabe and professor at Northern Michigan, and he started the Decolonizing Diet Project. He and a few of his colleagues decided to eat only pre-contact foods for a whole year, and they did. Um, but it took a whole year to organize this. Um, it's not as easy <laughs> as it might sound. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty impressive feat. And so this week-long challenge, I thought, if he can do it for a whole year, we can do it for a week. The challenge is to eat only foods from either your tribe or maybe a group of tribes or pre-contact foods from the whole hemisphere. And of course, you might have to expand your range because of the lack of resources. And some of the things are pretty expensive. Not everybody can just go buy moose. (laughs) And if you want to get wild salmon, you're really going to have to pay for that. So if you expand it all the way down to South America, you've got a lot of choices. So it's either all your meals for that week or just one meal a day. And this year, yeah, it'll, it'll be the same as usual. The dishes I post are very simple, you know, which is the goal. And the whole idea is to get people thinking about it and do some research and maybe engage with knowledgeable people in their tribes about what were our foodways. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you listen.